Well, what a, an amazing time. Uh, I'm so excited. Real human people in the room. Hi. How are you all? Are you guys good? It's so good to see you. Welcome to the Upper House. How are you guys? Everybody doing all right up there? Beautiful. You guys look amazing. Socially spread out and amazing. I love that. That's beautiful. I'm carrying in my spirit uh, something that I'm really excited to preach to you guys today about. I, 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 I've been saying this so many times, I'm going to keep saying it. There is never, I think in the whole of the history of Hong Kong, never a more important time to be Christian in our city than right now. Like, like I'm so excited about where we are as the church and what is ahead of us in the years ahead for the gospel in our city. No more important time for us to lean into the reality of what it is that we've been saved for. What it is that we get to gather in this room and, and sing praises for. We have to ask ourselves, is it just for us? Like, is what we're doing here just for this moment of 90 minutes? Or does it have something to say to everything that's taking place in not just our city in Hong Kong, but around the world right now? I, I believe that the Christian faith is the most profoundly important thing for this world in this hour. And I want to open up for us today as we start this new series and over the next seven weeks, what I think it is to live the Christian faith in this moment. I want to tell you a little bit about your story. I want to talk to you about the gospel and about what it is that you've been saved for. I want to challenge you also over the next seven weeks to rise up, to begin to be a voice of God's gospel and everything that is happening around us, I want to call you to be different. Are you ready? Yeah. Let me start with a story. 20 years ago, 20 years ago, I'm old. <laughs> it's always dangerous when you start a story with 20 years ago. 20 years ago, I led a, a small group of teenagers of youth from the vine on a missions trip to the slums of Manila. We were partnering with YWAM, visiting this particular part of Metro Manila. It's not there anymore, but in those days, 20 years ago, there was this place called Smoky Mountain. Don't know if you've ever heard of Smoky Mountain. It was famous around the world as being the world's largest rubbish dump. And it was right there in the middle of Metro Manila. It looked exactly like this. And this huge rubbish tip had 4,000 people that lived on it and made their lives from it, scavenging on the rubbish tip day in, day out, gathering things up so they could take it and sell it and make a livelihood. And, and our mission for a week, partnering with YWAM, was to go and do outreach to the 4,000 people that were on this rubbish tip. There was this basketball court, a couple of basketball courts right by the side of Smoky Mountain. Now, you know, in the Philippines, everything starts around basketball, right? And so there was these basketball courts, and we would go and we would hold outreach on these basketball courts for the people that were working and living, the children and the families on Smoky Mountain. Well, on, on this one particular day, we, we thought that traffic in Manila was going to be really bad. Who, who's faced traffic in Manila? You know it's bad, the worst in the world. And we thought it was going to be really bad, and so we went super early, but I guess God, like the Red Sea, parted the traffic for us. And we got there 45 minutes early. And we all got out of the van, there's me and like 10 kids, and I'm like the youth pastor going, what are we going to do for 45 minutes with all these youth that are, that are kind of just like, you know, wondering what's next? And I, and I look up and I notice that around Smoky Mountain, right where we were by the basketball courts, was this temporary housing unit. 
And in this temporary housing unit, there were five or six homes that were on these rickety kind of bamboo structures. And so I got this idea, okay, why don't we go up and we'll knock on the doors of these families and and we'll go in there and we'll introduce ourselves and and we'll share a little bit and we'll pray for them as families. And we thought this was a great idea. So I got all the youth and they were super excited. And we walked up these rickety staircases and we knocked on the first door and we went in and we're like, hi, we're from Hong Kong, you know, and this family was like, what is going on, you know? And then we would tell them a little bit about Jesus and we would pray for them as a family. We'd go out and we'd knock on the next door and we kept on doing this. And by the time we got to the last door, we had about seven minutes left before we were supposed to be on the basketball court to do our outreach. And I said to the team, okay, guys, we don't have a lot of time with this family. We're just going to knock on the door. We're going to go in. We're going to say hi. We're going to pray real quick. And then we're going to funnel out and get on with the outreach downstairs. And everybody was ready for it. We opened the door. We went in. As soon as we stepped into this last room, we recognized that this was different from all the other ones. It was immediately just darker and dingier. There was like this curtain that was pulled across the window, the only window in the hut. And as we walked up, we found and discovered this old couple, probably in their mid-80s, sitting there on a bed. And we noticed the man straight away because he had these two milky white type cataracts over his eyes. And we could tell that he was blind. And so we said through an interpreter, like, can you tell us your story? And he said, well, I've lived here on Smoky Mountain for 15 years. And and, and during that time, because of the the way that the sun comes and combusts all the things on Smoky Mountain, all all of the smoke has ruined my eyesight, and I can no longer see. I've got two full cataracts on my eyes from all of that smoke for all of those years, and I can't see anymore. And we had this real compassion for him, and and I said, okay, guys, well, let's just pray for this family. Let's pray for God's blessing. And, and so we, we kind of stretched our hands out. I was doing the kind of pray, check my watch prayer because I needed to get down for this outreach. And we finished the prayer, and I started to funnel the kids out real quick. And as all the kids go out, the last girl in our youth ministry, she was 14 years old. And she stands in the door as I'm trying to usher her out of the house. And she says to me, I, I believe God wants to heal this man. Uh oh. This is like every youth pastor's worst nightmare. This is like a lose lose situation, right? Because if I don't pretend to have as much faith as she's got, I look like the loser, right? Equally, if we go in there, I know that on the whole, I've experienced, I know that God's probably not going to heal this person. I know that's probably not going to happen. And so therefore, I'm going to have to spend the rest of the afternoon trying to describe theologically to these kids why God doesn't always heal when we have, and I'm going through all of this. And she's standing there with these big doe eyes going, I I believe God can heal this man. I'm looking at my watch and I'm going, all right, everybody back in the room, back in the room. Come on, come on quickly. Okay, okay, just say a prayer for him. Come on, let's go, you know. So she gathers around, and we all gather around, and she puts her little hand on this guy's shoulder. And she offers the simplest prayer. I I don't remember exactly what it was. It was something like, God, would you just heal this man? And what happened next is kind of hard to describe. The best way I could describe it is, it's a little bit like if you've got a car, and your windshield of your car is completely dirty, and you turn on the windscreen wipers, and it goes like this and cleans all that dirt away. Like literally, as I'm staring at this man, the cataracts in his eyes, the milky whiteness just is wiped away. And and we're, I'm like, oh, I don't believe what has just happened. 
And this is, the, this is a real gritty, real-life miracle, okay? Not like ones that we read in the Bible. This is really happening in this moment. And because it's a real miracle, this man has not had light enter his eyes for about 15 years. So suddenly, all this light is flooding into his system. It freaks him out. He goes, Aah! and he grabs his eyes, and he starts screaming as loud as he can. And his wife starts screaming right next to him. The kids start screaming. I'm screaming as well. It's a scream fest. And this man's like, ah, ah, like this. And then slowly, he, he, he's got his hands over his eyes. And then he, he lets them down slowly. And he's squinting. And he's, he's in like a little bit of pain. And, and, he's seeing, and he starts to count us in the room. And his wife starts to weep and weep, and we're all weeping and weeping. And I'm like, forget the outreach. <laughs> like, God's kingdom has come on earth as it is in heaven. It's literally invaded this moment and in this life. And then God has turned and changed and transformed this man. And I'm there, and I realize it's all because some 14-year-old girl had something different in her, something different from her youth pastor, <laughs> that she was carrying something in her that set her apart, that she could stare deformity in its face and go, I think I know a God who can do something about that, that she might carry something in her that was so different from the rest of us that God honors the reality that she was courageous enough to declare the promises of God when all I wanted to do was get to a basketball court. <laughs> this series that we're starting today, I believe, is the central word for what God has for the vine in this hour that we're in. There is no more important time for us to begin to realize, to remember, to celebrate that we have something in us. That means that we are different to the things that are around us in this world. If, if you think about all the things that are happening right now in our city, I believe that we are in an inflection point for the gospel right now in Hong Kong. That, that I, I think we're literally on a precipice where we're either going to move forward as the church in this city, holding the gospel loud and proud, or we're going to move back and we're going to lose a generation to Jesus. I think we're at an inflection point because of everything that's taking place, pandemic and politically right now. This city is still hurting. This city is still trying to work out what its identity is moving forward. There are people in this city that are scared and fearful. There are people in this city who are wondering, is it time to pack up the bags and go? Perhaps some of us are wrestling with that in this room right now. There are people in this city that are hurting and still confused and wondering what's next. And I think the church has to ask itself a really important question. Will we, the church in Hong Kong, become a, a bold and, and central voice of hope and faith and life and love in this time for the years ahead? Or will we feebly shrink back into the shadows of our own self-concern and self-preservation. Will the church in Hong Kong stand up and stand out? Or will it shrink back and fade out? Will the church 
begin to actually live out the gospel the way that it was always designed to be? Or will we settle for a gospel that keeps the lights on in here but shuts down our light out there? Come on, church. There's an inflection point right now in our city. Let me tell you this. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that we could enjoy a nice Christian holy huddle. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that Christians would just know comfort and safety and security. I want to misquote C.S. Lewis here. I don't know if that's a thing, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to misquote him by saying this. The Christian faith is good, but it's not safe. Jesus died on the cross, not for our comfort. Jesus died on the cross to create a new humanity, to, to begin the starting point of a new story, to create something within the mess and the brokenness that is different from it, that brings a hope, that brings a story and a narrative that begins to say something to that brokenness around. Jesus' death and resurrection was a declaration that God's not getting rid of all of the mess, but he's starting afresh within it. Paul would speak of Jesus as the new Adam. The starting point of a new story, of a new invitation. And that Jesus himself would say in all of his teachings before he got to the cross, I am here to start, to bring, to declare the kingdom of God. In other words, my death on the cross is going to create what I like to call an alternative society. Something about a new group of people that live within the rest of society. Don't separate from it. Don't go to be a monastery on a hill or birth within it, but are different to it. I believe God is going to heal this man. Jesus spoke about this alternative society a lot, the kingdom of God, the reign of God on earth. In Matthew chapter 13, he tells us a bunch of stories about it. My favorite is this, the kingdom of God this thing that Jesus died and rose again for, the thing that we get to call ourselves Christian around, it's like this. It's like a little piece of yeast being placed in a large amount of dough. It's very small. But because it's in this large amount of dough, and because it's different from that dough, when it gets kneaded over time, over a long period of time, guess what? Something so small can actually influence the whole dough and literally transform it into bread. Jesus is saying, do you want to know what this kingdom is like? Why I'm dying and rising again? It's so that there would be something different in you. So you might be like a, a piece of yeast. Play in your school or in your family or in your workplace or in your city. And over a period of time, God can take our differentness and begin to work and influence in society. The problem is, I think the church for so long, and particularly the modern church, has misinterpreted that parable. And they said, oh, the church is like dough in dough. I mean, if we want to be relevant in this world, well, we just need to look a little bit more like the world. We need to do things a little bit like them, but even better than them. It means we need to imitate and copy what's happening in the world, but slap a Christian label on it. We've come to think that our faith is dough in dough. Jesus is like, be different. That I'm starting in you a different story. Not be weird. Us Christians have struggled with this one as well. He didn't say be weird. 
We've all got the uncle, haven't we, in our family, right? You know, the weird uncle, right? That, like, no one knows what to do with and comes to the annual family barbecue and stands in the corner and smells a little bit, right? That's not us, okay? <laughs> We're not supposed to be weird, but we are supposed to carry something different. What is the different thing that we carry? Jesus is hope. Jesus is forgiveness. Jesus is love. As we begin to love one another, we begin to show the world what that love looks like. As we carry the hope that we've been redeemed, we realize it's not just for us, but it's for everyone else. And we begin to speak of that hope boldly and courageously so that others might know the character and the person of God. The difference is not us. The difference is Jesus. And we get to make Jesus known. I don't want to do anything else with my life but that. Hmm. The great powerful audacity of the Christian faith is that through a relationship with Christ Jesus, we get to declare to the world that we are yeast in dough, a light in the darkness, a city on a hill. And we get to live out the realities of what that looks like. What does it mean for us to be different in Hong Kong in this time where there is fear, we might move in courage. Where there is uncertainty and concern, we might declare faith. Where there is slavery, we might break chains. That we might become the church that God died for. I think we're at an inflection point. Whereas a church, we get to decide if that's what we want or not. Whether we're going to have our voice be heard. There's a lot of stories in Scripture around holding this different type of approach. I call it a different spirit. What I want to challenge us in over the next seven weeks is what it is to hold a different spirit. Again, not to be weird or strange or different for different sake but to realize that in the story of the gospel and in the power of the Spirit alive in us, there is something different that we carry that has something to say of hope in the world around us. This different spirit is throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament. And what we're going to do over these seven weeks is we're going to park ourselves in one story in the Old Testament. It's one of the most famous stories of the Old Testament. It's found in Numbers um, chapter 13 and 14. It's the story of the 12 spies being sent out to spy Canaan, the promised land that had been promised to them. And what we're going to do is we're going to go week by week through this story together. And I'm going to show you what a different spirit looks like because I want to empower us and release us to live that different spirit in our city today. Let me give you some context to this story as an introduction this morning. We know that God has released Israel from their slavery in Egypt. And he's done it through compassion. He's done it miraculously. He's parted the waters. He's brought them out. And they're now in their freedom. But freedom is not an easy thing. Freedom has responsibilities. And in that whole journey of slavery into freedom, God's been giving them one story the whole time. There's an inheritance for you. There's a land that I'm leading you to. There's a place where I'm going to be moving you into, a place that flows with milk and honey, a land that is a gift of God's people, that it's going to be a place for you to grow in, to learn in, to flourish, a safe environment where you get to show the world what God looks like. There's a land for you. And this dream and this vision and this promise of an inheritance of a land keeps Israel going. And now in Numbers 13 and 14, they're right at the Jordan River and they can see the land just right there. And Moses does something really smart, 
rather than just suddenly invading the land, gets 12 of the best men from the different 12 tribes of Israel. And he says to them, I want you to go into the land and spy it out and come back and give us a report. Is this actually the land that God's promised to us? What is it like? And so these 12 go out and for 40 days they spy out the land. They come back and they give a report to Israel. And the report essentially is twofold. Number one, it is an amazing land. It does flow with milk and honey. There's incredible fruit in this land. And that fruit is good. Look, we've even brought some of that fruit back to show you this is an amazing place. What an inheritance. And then the second part of the report is there's a but, right? You know you're in trouble when there's that. And they say, but there's giants in that land. I mean, there's obstacles, there's fortified cities, there's stuff that's there in that land. We have to get to outreach in just a few moments of basketball court. There's distractions, there's things there that, that will stop us from moving in. And, and, and they begin to give this report that, that this is the end, that we've come all this way. Why has God led us out of slavery in Egypt and brought us here to be killed by the giants in the promised land? And fear begins to spread in the camp. In this time of our society and culture, in our world right now, fear spreads in the camp because of bad reports. I shudder to use the word fake news, but you're with me, right? Opinions. Everybody with a keyboard telling us what we should believe and think. Everybody telling us whether this virus is good or not, the vaccine is good or not. All these obstacles and communication and information, and we get swamped by it, and we get information fatigue, and it can lead us very easily into a place where we're no longer listening to the promises of God, and we're absorbing all of the commentary of the world. Two spies, though, are willing to say to Moses, I believe God could heal this man. Two spies stand up and say, hmm. Hang on a sec. I mean, if this is a promise of God, if this is his land that he's giving to us, then I, I, I think we can take this land. Yeah, we, we see the obstacles, but you know what? Our God is bigger than that. There are two that begin to give a, a different voice to the situation, began to stand up and say, no, actually, we cannot forget that God is at work. We cannot forget. We see the obstacles. We see the giants, but there's something bigger than the giants. There's the God behind them, and that God is way more powerful. And if we could just believe that God could do this, then everything could, and they begin to say, two voices out of the 12, that God is still with us. God sees all this happening, and he's like, okay. And he separates the ten from the two. And God says to the ten, because you are unfaithful, because you fail to believe, none of your descendants will ever enter the inheritance and the promise that I've given you. And he turns to the two and he says, because of you two, your descendants, your people will inherit the promises of God. I believe that Hong Kong as a city is God's promised land. I believe God has Hong Kong as an inheritance, that the gospel is still ripe for work in this city. Are we going to be the ten, or are we going to be the two? Here's how God puts it in, ex uh, in Numbers 14. Is everybody okay? You still like me? Good. Verse 21, it says this, Surely as I live, this is God speaking, 
And as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, notice that, the whole earth, right? Including the promised land where the giants are. Yeah. Not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times. Not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land that he went to and his descendants will inherit it because this one has a different spirit. This one carries something of my character. This one believes in my promises above what he sees in the world. This one and all of his descendants and his family will walk into that inheritance. This one. Why? Because he carried a different spirit. Caleb allowed his incredible vision of God and his understanding of God's power and his promises to filter into his thoughts and actions and his public expression of his faith. And God saw that and believed it was very, very good. Over the next seven weeks, I'm going to teach you about what I think this different spirit is all about. But I want to start today by telling you what the different spirit is not. Are you ready for this? A different spirit is not manufactured by the flesh. A different spirit is not something that we work up in us with some nice music or some rah-rah or some shouting. A different spirit is not something created in us. It is not our inner skills or our inner strength or our personal abilities. It is not the thing that I do that I do really well. My different spirit is not the strength that I have, even if that strength has come from my years of walking with Jesus. It's got nothing to do with the person or the gifts or the abilities of me. If that was the case, then when God showed up to these 12 people, he would have said they all had a different spirit. Because the 10 spies were the strongest, most courageous, bravest, best leaders of their tribes. That was why they were chosen to go into the promised land. But God doesn't say that. He says, over here, these two have something different to the rest. So a different spirit has nothing to do with our abilities. Can I have an amen? Amen. A different spirit also is not a type A personality. A different spirit is not being extroverted. Can I have an amen, introverts? Now, I might be an extrovert myself. But the reality is a different spirit is not about your ability to communicate, your your, your ability to be passionate, how loud you raise your voice, how comfortable you are in social settings, whether you're a good leader or not. It's not about a personality profile. The Bible is filled with introverts that change the world. As hard as that is for me to say, it is true. Introverts everywhere in Scripture do amazing things. Moses, I I, I, I can't go before Pharaoh because I utter. I have no voice. Daniel, an introvert. Amos, Barnabas, Timothy, Jude, John, ones that would prefer the quieter life are used so profoundly and powerfully in God's story. In fact, I would argue there are more introverts at work in Scripture than extroverts. So a different spirit has absolutely nothing to do with your personality profile. Are you with me? Here's the third thing. A different spirit is not about moral perfection or your amazing holiness. 
Now, this is really important because I think as a church, we can get full into this trap quite a lot. You're, you're hearing me today, and you're hearing what I'm saying, and you're thinking, okay, I get it. I get that God can use other people of different abilities. I get that God can use other people of different kind of personality traits, but you don't know my story, Andrew. I'm, I'm an alcoholic. I, I, I struggle with lust issues. I, I'm cheating on my spouse right now. I have anger issues that I can't control. I, I lie on a regular basis. I mean, if you knew all the things that were happening in my life, you would realize that there's no different spirit in me. You'd realize that, that that's for the, the, the other people in church. I, I'm just going to come on a Sunday and, and just kind of slip in and slip out because I don't think I'm worthy of being a part of this grand idea of church that you're talking about. I want to speak to you if you're feeling a little bit like that today. I want you to know that there's nothing in this story Yes, God says to Caleb, well, he followed me wholeheartedly. There was a sense of Caleb's devotion and worship to God. But there's nothing in this story about how perfectly moral and ethical Caleb was. In fact, I can tell you that probably Caleb was a man who struggled with stuff. Caleb probably wasn't perfect. Joshua definitely, as we will find out in his journey, was not perfect. David, a man after God's heart, was a murderer, a rapist and an adulterer. And when we see all of this in Scripture, it's there to remind us that even despite our brokenness, despite our sin, we can still be a part of God's alternative society. In fact, actually, maybe our struggles are a part of the jars of clay, this broken and brittleness, that actually when we admit the reality of our sin and our struggle, we release something of the power of God's grace. Maybe a different spirit is at work despite the church's sin. Now, listen to me. I'm not soft on sin. The Holy Spirit wants us to operate and to walk in a sanctification process. I praise God that I'm not the sinner I was 10 years ago, 5 years ago, last month. But I also recognize that I still carry sin in my life. And I'm on a journey of sanctification. My heart is supple to the works of the Spirit. Here's the reality. Your struggle and your sin does not give you an excuse to opt out of God's alternative society from holding a different spirit. It's not about your moral perfection. It's about God's glory despite it. See, a different spirit in the New Testament, if we center in on Jesus for a moment, is all about this idea that He is everything. That the early church would be able to live the way they did in the empire around them by simply understanding that they have a God who is like this. One who, who was willing to come to the earth and die with it. One who was willing to resurrect around it. One who then returned to show us and gave us our spirit of life. That that one is what they now stood up for. So Peter, radically transformed, could stand before his people of his day and be a different spirit. Why? Just because suddenly, you know, Peter's got all these new gifts and abilities because Peter is suddenly not a sinner? No, because Peter realizes it's not about me. Because it's about Jesus, even in my brokenness, I can be a voice. I believe God can heal this man. I wonder whether we would be willing over the next seven weeks to stand over our city, join hands together, and declare, we believe God could heal this city. That's a different spirit. Could you stand with me? I want to pray for you.
I wonder whether you just open your hands with me as we pray. Father, we come before you as a church, grateful for this invitation in this series to reflecting and thinking about what it is to live for Christ in this hour and in this time. Father, we stand before you now, open hearts, open hands. Father, some of us in this room, we rely far too much on our strengths and our abilities. Some of us in this room think we're disqualified because we're not a certain personality type or profile. Some of us in this room think we're disqualified because there's that sin that we continue to wrestle with. Some of us think that if we could just try a bit harder, embrace some work a bit more and be driven by the law, we think we might get there, but the law will enslave us. Grace sets us free. And so we come, Lord, at the start of this series with our hands open before you. Lord, I believe the vine wants to be a church with a different spirit now. I believe in this inflection point of the gospel, you're calling this church to stand up and stand out. To be a church that's willing to declare the gospel, the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ to a hurting and broken world. And Father, in all of our brokenness and all of our hope and strength, we now come to you. We ask that your spirit would light a fire in us. And that as we journey in this series together, we would learn through the examples of Caleb and Joshua all of the things that you're saying to us in this hour. Make us, make us, Lord, ones with a different spirit.